this adventurous episode of Starpod Log, we consider the contents of Starlog Magazine from 1980 in issues 37 and 38. Special guests this episode include Mike Jones fills us in on actor Harrison Ford as he returns to portray Han Solo in The Empire Strikes Back. Kevin Lenz tells us about the fun hobby of collecting movie soundtracks and storybooks on vinyl. Dave Kaufman enlightens us on the resurgence of interest in space music. Flynn Hendricks reports on the wrestling highlights from 1980. Paul Mount gives us a background history about Doctor Who writer Terrence Dix. That junk man considers how David Gerald trashed The Empire Strikes Back. Plus... Close Encounters of the Third Kind Special Edition. Buck Rogers, Tim O'Connell. Anthony Daniels at ICCC. And more on this episode of Starpod Log. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hoorah. Tally ho. Hey my little Georgie Peach. Hey, Pud. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and fantasy. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we leave the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, Starpod Trek. If you are listening to us on a podcast app, Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, which includes bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. Starlog Magazine, issue number 37, cover date, August 1980. Communications, letters to Starlog Magazine. Gary Randall of Los Angeles, California, writes, As a fan of H.R. Geiger, I have been collecting his prints and corresponding with him for some time. So when he arrived in Los Angeles for the Academy Awards, I wasted no time in contacting him. Enclosed is a photograph of him posing with his award for Alien. He had just been to Disneyland the day before, which explains the hat. As a fan of Starlog, I would like to share this picture with the readers. Okay, this is Geiger wearing a Mickey Mouse ears hat in 1980. And what makes this so funny right now? The fact that Disney recently purchased Fox Studios. So, at this point, Alien is a Disney movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool because it's totally for children. Richie Tift of Jensen Beach, Florida writes... In a recent survey, Darth Vader was picked as the second meanest villain, only topped by Emperor Ming. I'm confident that after The Empire Strikes Back, Vader will be elected the meanest. So can you imagine? Kids at that time, the number one villain was Ming the Merciless in the world of sci-fi. So, I mean, kids still knew about the serials of the 1930s and 40s. Isn't that crazy to consider that? Yeah, it is. I mean, like... He he wasn't really in the um, in the forefront at the time of, of this survey, but yeah, but Darth Vader probably will be number one. I think Darth Vader was 
viewed in the world of fandom as number one for the longest time until The Phantom Menace came out. Seeing him as a little boy just took away all the terror. Now we have a letter from Darby Fallon of Van Nuys, California. It was gratifying to see an original interview with Tom Baker. Many of the quotes used in other articles have been repetitions of other interviews or similar paraphrasings. It is a misrepresentation to say that the Los Angeles Con was more successful than the British Panopticon, named for the Time Lord Ceremonial Hall, Panopticon, was a private convention of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society, and membership was deliberately limited to 375 people, so all attendees could be able to enjoy it to the fullest. It was a non-profit convention and very successful. There were many guests from the BBC, including Tom Baker. The BBC also supplied actual props and costumes from the program for exhibit. The real success of a convention can be judged by how happy the attendees were, and by this criterion, Panopticon was an overwhelming success. Well, actually, this reminds me of Gallifrey One, the long-running Doctor Who convention that just happened to be in Los Angeles where this fan was riding from. Now, Gallifrey One purposely caps off attendance because they want to keep the convention at a level where the organizers can handle it. The writer of this letter made a good point. Just because it's small doesn't mean it's worse. Well, well certainly not. I mean, when it's, it's exactly the size they want it to be, and they plan for that many people, and that's what they limit it to. Log Entries Latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Galactica shot down. Buck set to fly. Galactica 1980 is being carried out on a stretcher in this year's ratings war, and Buck Rogers is being fortified and sent to the front lines. We were both fans of Battlestar Galactica 1980 as well as Buck Rogers. I mean, watching Galactica 1980 as an adult was a struggle, but as a kid, I loved it. But we could see why Buck Rogers had strong enough ratings to come back another season. Yeah, I mean, I liked Galactica 1982, but Buck Rogers was really one of my favorite shows back then. I mean, it, you know, it would have been nice if both of them could have stayed on, but, but they couldn't really do both. Yeah, I think Galactica 1980 went so downhill when they obviously over-pandered it to children. Yeah, and, and I think, because for Buck Rogers, I think a lot of adults like that show, too. I think it was more well-rounded sci-fi. Yeah. Record price for Superman comic. Back in the summer of 1938, a dime bought more than two pounds of potatoes or a pack of cigarettes. A leisurely spent dime got you into a kitty matinee where you could stay for a double feature, three cartoons, and a newsreel. Or you might have clunked down a dime at the corner store and walked away with a copy of the June 1938 issue of Action Comics number 1, the original Superman tale. I love how it says this is a record-breaking number. Someone bought this comic book for an astounding $6,000 in auction. Howard Lowry of Collector Showcase said bidding was heavy. 
Action Comics number one features the first appearance of the Man of Steel, just an infant leaving the doomed planet of Krypton. Now we look at this and laugh now. Can you imagine? It was only $6,000. So in today's money, that would be less than $20,000. And recently one just sold for $3.18 million. <laughs> <laughs> You want to talk about a good investment? That was an incredible investment right there. And Superman is really, you know, still more popular than ever. Yeah, just think about it. That was considered an absolutely absurd price to put on a comic book in 1980. The article goes on to report that today only 12 copies of the comic are known to still be intact. Surviving basement floods, attic cleanings, global wars, and younger siblings. And that's one of the things to consider about Platinum Age comics, Golden Age comics is no one thought about saving them, especially intact. There's loose pages around. There's pieces of covers around. But to have an entire issue of a comic like that, that was pretty much designed to be thrown away, it's pretty amazing. George Powell, 1908 to 1980. George Powell, regarded by many as the father of the modern science fiction film, died of a heart attack in his Beverly Hills home on May 2nd at the age of 72. This pioneer of science fiction motion pictures certainly did have a full life. He did a lot of great movies. Yeah, we've talked about him a lot. Alfred Hitchcock, 1899-1980 Sir Alfred Hitchcock, master of the macabre suspense genre for more than 60 years, died in his sleep Tuesday, April 29, 1980, in his home in Bel Air, California. One of the most prominent directors that I knew about as a kid. I absolutely enjoyed everything that he did, not just the movies, but also the television program. I would, I would watch Alfred Hitchcock Presents back-to-back with The Twilight Zone. He changed the landscape of movies in such an amazing way. And I really enjoyed him. So he, I, I do think he was he was great. And and I know you know like seeing the movies, you can tell why he was so popular, and how he became a name that everyone knew. Not a lot of directors become household names like he did. And and I also think that he's the first one, at least that I've ever heard of, or I, actually that I was looking for to make cameos in movies. Yeah, I mean, for a director to do that is. Is very unusual. Like this generation always looked for Stan Lee in movies. Right. And and it's amazing. You you look at what he produced. Psycho, The Birds, Dial In for Murder, Rear Window, Family Plot, North by Northwest. I mean, this cinematic style became known in Hollywood as the Hitchcock style or the Hitchcock way of filming. He really was so groundbreaking in building suspense. He could do it like no one else, and and it hadn't been done in his style or the, in in the way that he did it back then. This issue in particular, Starlog Thirty Seven, which has an interview with my all-time favorite actor uh, and a big influence on my cosplay life, uh, and that is of course Harrison Ford. The interview uh, in Starlog. 37 comes post Empire Strikes Back, 
but prior to what they were referring to in the magazine as Revenge of the Jedi, which we all know was the initial title of the final installment of the original trilogy, which of course became Return of the Jedi. And in Starlock 37, they reveal, uh, Harrison Ford specifically reveals that he will be back for Revenge of the Jedi, which thankfully lets us off the hook and we know that our hero will return, even though when we last saw him, he was in Carbonite, whereabouts unknown, Lando and Chewbacca promising Leia that they would find him and bring him home. So with that being said, uh, he then takes a leap point from there and discusses um, some of his early life as an actor, why he didn't sign contracts, uh, one of the things that a lot of folks forget uh, was that he had not signed a sequel contract for the third film. So freezing him allowed them to uh, buy some time, potentially uh, write him out, Lord forbid, kill him off, uh, or, of course, as we know he did, come back. So with that, we saw the uh, interview go from there to explaining that he never liked contracts because his earliest contracts trapped him uh, with the uh, classic uh, six movie minimums with a particular pr uh, company, uh, film production company, and then he uh, never was really thrilled with those kinds of things. He signed on two different occasions with those. He also explains that uh, he never felt that he would be typecast uh, as Han Solo because Han Solo was such a broad character that he was not specific, uh, almost the everyman, which we uh, we know that he does so well anyway, uh, being that he uh, has portrayed and is still portraying Indiana Jones. Uh, and during this interview uh, in 1982, he would have also uh, have just completed uh, Blade Runner, uh, and Raiders of the Lost Ark would have come out the preceding year. So a lot going on uh, in those uh, three, four years for Harrison Ford. Uh, of course, after Star Wars, he did uh, Force 10 from Navarone, which is a very, very loose sequel to um, The Guns of Navarone, uh, as well as Hanover Street and a couple of others that really did extend him beyond uh, the Han Solo character. He also had a brief cameo in Apocalypse Now, uh, a film that had been delayed a little bit, so uh, his name becomes a lot more prominent as an uh, actor in it because of uh, Star Wars and the other films that he was doing. Uh, for me, uh, of course, his influence is, uh, is uh, lifelong because I was four years old when I saw Star Wars for the first time, and that was in the theaters in 1977. Uh, and after that, all I wanted was Harrison Ford action figures, Harrison Ford pencils, and Harrison Ford lunchboxes. Of course, to me, they were Han Solo lunchboxes that were Star Wars, or I wanted a Star Wars uh, action figure of Harrison Ford, or I wanted the Indiana Jones action figures, or the 12-inch versions that Kenner also came out with uh, as well. Uh, I wanted to be Han Solo on the playground when we um, would act out the uh, Star Wars movies. But when I was younger, I had blonde hair. Uh, now I transitioned to brown uh, as I got older, but I would get typecast as Luke Skywalker sometimes, and that 
never really set well with me because I never really saw myself as him. So even at an early age, I identified with Han Solo and with Harrison Ford and uh, with how he portrayed these characters that we all know and love today. Both the roguish idea of him and also the everyman uh, character that we see him as in Indiana Jones. Uh, because as uh, somebody who was influenced by him as Indiana Jones, I can recall playing with my brother in the back of our father's pickup truck <clears throat> with a piece of uh, long rope as a whip, and I would get knocked off the truck, and I would have to climb back into the truck uh, and then fight my way to the front of the truck. Uh, of course, not moving at the time, but in our minds it was. Uh, it never left the front of the house or the driveway. But uh, in our minds, it was on some dusty road somewhere uh, traveling along as we try to recapture the ark <clears throat> or any number of other artifacts that we might have imagined. As uh, I progressed through the years, we had opportunity at times to try to act things out uh, in various characters. And I can remember at age probably nine years old taking a, my uh, suit that mom had gotten me for Easter and taking, of course, the blazer away and keeping the uh, black vest underneath with the white collared shirt and wearing the black pants and imagining, of course, that that would be my costume for Han Solo. Uh, and then my friends and I would all act out the roles uh, for those characters as well. But I can even remember trying to uh, figure out a way for my brow to be more furrowed and my eyes to set a little deeper into my... Uh, my head so that I could have that uh, specific look that he gave when he initially saw the, the Death Star and realized that it wasn't a moon, uh, that, that, that uh, confused yet uh, quickly uh, changing over to I've got a plan kind of uh, visage that he uh, always seemed to have. Uh, but as, uh, as an adult now, I get the opportunity to portray him uh, with the Rebel Legion, and uh, which is a great, great opportunity uh, because we visit uh, hospitals and charity events and many other uh, conventions and activities. And there I get to be Han Solo, you know, once again, at this time as an adult, of course. And as the, as the, uh, the years have gone by. I've been able to expand uh, the costumes that I have so I can wear his uh, New Hope version or Hoth or Bespin, as the Kenner you know, used to call them. They would label them by their respective uh, locales. The uh, Return of the Jedi versions with dusters. Uh, I've got the... Uh, the uh, various items that you can add, blasters and buckles and change out all the uh, general greeblies and accessories. So I've had a lot of fun being able to do that too, being able to act out with, uh, act those out now in the, in the present world that we, we know today. And thankfully as things have changed and are changing back to, uh, to some kind of normalcy, we're able to go back out at a lot of those events again. Uh, but my wife, who portrays Princess Leia, and I got somewhat creative, and we did create Minoc masks with uh, canisters so that we could, you know, visit and still stay in costume, but yet have those masks on. So when we went to certain areas that required masks, we could uh, stay in stay in costume, and that was a lot of fun as well. 
Harrison Ford has uh, definitely been a huge influence on me um, throughout these years. And, of course, even now I get to – I do Indiana Jones as well, uh, and I am part of a lot of costume uh, groups online, social media, through Facebook, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, And I've also started a Han Solo cosplay group about five years ago uh, that has grown to almost 800 members. Uh, And there we discuss uh, and buy and sell – uh, and try to perfect our various uh, costumes. It's amazing to see how influential he has been on not just myself, but so many other people, men and women alike of all different, uh, you know, gender and race and uh, nationality. It, it, he, as well as his characters, are far-reaching. And I think that's what makes him so special, is that even nearing 80, we are excited to see him portray Indiana Jones once again. And even in his 70s, we were excited to see him portray Han Solo once again. Uh, and, uh, of course, some some will be cynical about those things and, and think that he's too old, but the majority of us uh, can't see anybody else in those roles just yet. Uh, not that uh, the solo Star Wars movie wasn't great, because my personal opinion, I thought it really, really was. Uh, but Han Solo is Harrison Ford, and Harrison Ford's Han Solo. And to to quote him on uh, during his interview when they asked him about uh, who might one day in the future portray Indiana Jones, he's like, "I'm Indiana Jones, and when I die, he dies." Um, and I thought that was classic Harrison Ford, and very much a classic turn of uh, phrase for him to uh, to say when he when I die, he dies. Uh, of course. The one thing I've not ever been able to do as of yet is meet him in person. I saw him in person at Celebration uh, in 2017 in Orlando. I got to be within about probably 20, 25 feet as he was on uh, the main stage there uh, discussing the, uh, the his death, actually, in Force Awakens. So that was pretty awesome. Uh, when they said his name, uh, I... I uh, probably was nearly running uh, to get over the stage. I was probably about, I don't know, about 50 yards or less away and was able to get myself right up near uh, the front of the stage. That was pretty awesome. Uh, Pretty incredible moment as well. Uh, Perhaps one day I'll I'll catch him. I I live in a state where his uh, his, uh, uh, wife's family lives and he does fly in. Uh, I know some people here who have actually met him at the airport, the small private airport that he flies into. It's a small town, and they've been able to run into him there. Uh, I've also uh, know some people who have met him at breakfast in uh, downtown in the larger uh, city that uh, that uh, is near that uh, small town as well. So perhaps, perhaps I will get to meet him at some point one day. Uh, but if not... Uh, that w- de- definitely does not diminish his influence by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I, uh, my wife sometimes says that I strike his uh, facial expressions or my, you know, I'll say something that uh, is very striking toward, toward what uh, he might say in character even out. So perhaps uh, in some small way uh, that has um, come to be part of who I am as, uh, also. To be honest, uh, growing up with a dad who was in the military and who loves those kinds of characters, 
uh, and reminds me a lot of that uh, the roguish characters and the action adventure kind of character uh, he in a lot of ways reminded me of my dad as well so uh, they are very close in age so there's certainly a lot to be said about that too standing in line for the empire strikes back this was interesting starlog actually interviewed people that were waiting in line to see the empire strikes back and they purposely took a cross-section of society all different genders races age groups everyone was excited about this star wars sequel terry mcgarry age 17 I didn't like it more than Star Wars, but I liked it as much. It was a lot less naive than Star Wars. Almost immediately, you see blood. It's a shock because you don't expect that from a Lucasfilm. I didn't mind it. It didn't offend me, and in a way, I appreciated it. It made the film more realistic. That's an interesting observation. We know we saw blood in the cantina scene in the original Star Wars, but obviously, this fan, it, it was a shock to her. To see blood again. Yeah, but I mean, she's right that it is more, um, it is more mature than, than Star Wars was. Martin Gomez, 18, says, All in all, I liked it. I'll go for anything that's fun, and I thought it was fun. In a sense, it was more fun than Star Wars. It was a bit more sophisticated. I guess my taste has changed since I saw Star Wars three years ago. It was a lit, it was a bit less childish. I liked it a lot. The relationship between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker came as quite a shock, but I figured they wouldn't lie about something like that. Interesting. He was thinking that possibly it could be a lie. Well, yeah, I, I heard people talk about about that too, and I was kind of wondering, like, yeah, I mean, Darth could have lied to Luke. I mean, yeah, he would do that. Chi Chan, age 15, first person in line. I thought it was good, she said, especially the special effects. I liked it when, when they were flying through the asteroid field. It was better than I expected because they told more about the characters in Star Wars. Darth Vader and Luke was the biggest surprise for me because I didn't expect it. Yoda was kind of cute. I didn't like the ending because it just stopped. I expected more. It was a cliffhanger. George Lucas, he wanted to model it after the serials. That was another complaint that some people had, like it, like it wasn't a full movie. I mean, it, it just stopped right there. I remember I just wanted more. I was just so stunned. This is amazing. We just weren't used to movies like that. We got to think James Bond movies had a complete ending. Planet of the Apes movies had a complete ending. This was so groundbreaking in the fact that it was made to be a trilogy. And, and you, you know, it, it could have been a complete movie and people would still want to see the next movie. So it was, you know, even more exciting to have it, to have it in that way because you're, you're thinking, Oh, I can't wait to see the next one. And then you have to wait several years for it. Orlando Vasquez, 36 says, I think the movie was as good as the original movie, but the ending came a little short. They should have added something, a little more substance, to make you grasp a little more. The violence kind of shocked me, though I wasn't surprised. Today, people are more aware. They're not like the 60s when it comes to sex, violence, and so forth. Interesting observation. Yeah, well, the 
you know, the Star Wars movies do have, they have a lot of shoot 'em up scenes, and they have the, um, the dog fights, but there's even the more, the more close up violence of the, uh, the cutting the tauntaun open and cutting off Luke's hand, those kind of things. It, it, it could be disturbing for some of the younger audiences. So this is from Jeremy Orbach. This is the, he's an actor, and he's the father of these kids. Chris says, once you're watching it, you can't take your eyes off the screen. Even if you get bored with it, you just have to find out what happens. The people who got the idea to do a next movie and a next movie, I, I think that was a good idea because if they want to make money, that's the way. They want to keep everybody waiting, just itching to see more of the next movie, making still more money. I'll keep going back. They can keep my money. I don't care. I just want to find out what happens. When I was his age, we'd go to the serials on Saturday afternoon. You'd see the movie, then we left up in the air until next Saturday. Now you have to wait three years or until the next one comes out. I think from a little more adult point of view, that is the internal fight between good and evil and on the way of the Jedi Master. That's sort of Zen philosophy. It is a fascinating thing that came out of much more str strongly in this picture. It's quite easy to see how Luke's father could have taken the so-called path of darkness and turned himself into Darth Vader, and now Luke has to fight those same temptations. I think it is a fascinating story. I think it was more adult than Star Wars. Gotta agree. Far more adult. It was, as we talked about with the violence, but yeah, also with the relationship and, and Luke's journey. Stuart Wall, six and three quarters. He's not just six, he's six and three quarters. He says, it was a little scary. The sounds weren't real. I know because sound can't travel in space. I really liked when they were fighting on that frozen planet and they swirled the rope around the big thing and caught it. I don't like Darth Vader because he's the bad guy. I don't like bad guys. I didn't want him on my shirt, really. I'd rather put Luke Skywalker on it, but they ran out at the store when I got there. I didn't like the way they did Princess Leia's hair. That wasn't good. I liked how they did it in the first movie. They had smarter people who did her hair then. I won't see it again. Once is enough. It was scary. That's what I don't like about it. <laughs> so that was someone like a six-year-old and he's wearing a t-shirt that says darth vader lives oh but i mean but yeah that might be how i would talk about the movie too oh at that that let's see uh yeah I, I knew about star wars at that age or i probably just found out about it at that age yeah i love darth vader this, this kid's on crack or something <laughs> yeah i think it's when you get older that you realize that that you can like the villains you know Totally. I'd wear a Darth Vader shirt schooled one day and then an Ilea shirt another day. <laughs> okay. But you didn't really want an Ilea shirt. You just had that I'm because like this they were kid. out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Alice Gerand, 74, retired school teacher, says, There is a dual nature that we cannot get away from. Darth Vader represents absolute evil, and absolute evil can exist in reality. After all, how about the man who burned children at Dachau? George Lucas says not to put any significance into it. Just sit back and enjoy it. But I don't believe that. This movie is a fix for me. 74 years old. How cool is that? She's a Star Wars fan. Yeah, that's cool. And she's a teacher, too. And she can, like, in the way she talks about it, she she's used to explaining these things. She's looking for real-world parallels? Yeah, yeah. Last commentary is from Jerry Wetmore, 26 years old. He's a projectionist at a movie theater. He says that I think that Star Wars is far more exciting, but this one keeps the suspense more. 
This one gets a much better reaction from the audience than Star Wars. The audience goes nuts when the characters make their first appearances. Has to be an amazing experience to be a projectioner when Star Wars movies first come out. Yeah, to see everybody cheer and and know that they're happy with it when you, when you enjoy it too. John Williams strikes back or the soundtrack continues. I'm here with very special guest Hi, this is Kevin Lentz with the Star Wars Records and Tapes group on Facebook. Kevin, what was your first experience hearing a Star Wars soundtrack? My first experience hearing a Star Wars soundtrack, uh, my cousin Scott had the, the LP of the Star Wars soundtrack and one of those stackable record players in his basement. And that record soundtrack was built to be played on the stackable record players where well, the first disc had size A and C, and the second one had sides B and D, so you could stack it and listen to half of the whole album at a time and then stack them back up. So yeah, that was my first experience hearing the soundtrack. I, I remember when I first heard it, and you got to remember, and we're around the same age, movies before that time did not have so much orchestral soundtracks that was indicative to the movie. Like 2001 Space Odyssey took... Music that was already in circulation. Planet of the Apes had more of a primal sound to it. Star Wars just changed the landscape for sci-fi going forward. Yeah, John Williams, um, Star Wars would not be the same movie without John Williams' soundtrack. If you go back and watch like the early, early trailers before they plug his music <laughs> in, they are awkward and slow. His, his music, his motifs, um, the fact that they went with classical soundtrack but newly written soundtrack as opposed to trying to do like a disco soundtrack or something like yes. that kept the movie from feeling as dated as it would have otherwise. Yeah, that was huge. That, that's a good point, dated. Because even though as much as we love classic sci-fi movies, just just hearing it, it, it brings you into either the 50s, 60s, or 70s. Now, this article coming out of Starlog magazine talks about how amazing John Williams is and how versatile he is. He was the chosen successor to the late Arthur Fiedler as the conductor of the Boston Pops Orchestra. But he talks about the tone of the Empire Strikes Back album, that he specifically wanted to be a darker feel. How do you feel about that? Is his description that he wanted to go into it being very heavy? Yeah, I like I like Dennis Dennis Aron's review. One thing, it's interesting to read a contemporaneous review of the Empire Strikes Back soundtrack, right? Because it's so ingrained in... And we all know the music, we know the Imperial March, and to, to read it from someone who had, you know, just recently heard it for the first time. Uh, he does spend a lot of time talking about how it's a darker soundtrack, the themes and the motifs are uh, more in minor keys and more frenzied, and, but he, he wraps around really, like, praising that. And, of course, it fits the movie, right? It's a darker movie. The bad guys win, good guys lose, and, and the, the soundtrack reflects that. Do you remember your first experience getting the Empire Strikes Back record? I assume you got it on record, LP, when you first got it. So as a kid, I had, I think the only original trilogy soundtrack I had was the Return of the Jedi soundtrack. And I had that on cassette. Um, 
what I had as a kid was the the read-along story records and tapes, um, yeah. and that's why why I'm so big into collecting those today. So no, the soundtracks are more were as a kid, and for me as a collector, are more periphery to where my real passion is. Interesting, because I remember the, getting the first Star Wars the gatefold, which was amazing, kind of like the Kiss Alive gatefold, right? <laughs> Kiss Alive too. You open up, you see all these pictures. And I remember putting stickers, puffy stickers, on the inside of the original Star Wars one. And then when Empire Strikes Back came out, remember getting it. But here's my dilemma. I didn't analyze the cover well enough. The Darth Vader looked like Darth Vader, but he kind of looked like Darth Vader in scuba gear. And the Tauntauns were more lizards. But I was like, oh, here's it says music from Empire Strikes Back inspired by... And I got home and I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> right. You had not the official 20th Century Fox, or rather RSO pressing of the soundtrack. You had a re-recording with some really cool cover art, though. I actually love that love that knockoff cover art. That's one of my favorite records. Not for listening, but for looking at it. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of the things that's curious about Star Wars record collecting. From a kid's point of view... All I saw was music from Empire Strikes Back. I didn't stop to think that it would be a deviant of such. You being a record collector, why is that such a fun thing to collect, this niche? So it's it's fun to collect. Um, so sometimes like people refer to that as like a bootleg record, and it's really not. It's it's completely it was sold in regular stores. Yeah, it's completely licensed. The way that music licensing works is. Um, you can re-record a piece of music and release your version of it as long as you credit the composers and pay your royalties. What you can't do is um, use copyrighted imagery and logos. So that's why those alternate recordings have such fun cover art. And the one you're talking about goes to such great lengths. Tony D'Amata, I remember, introduced me to that cover art during one of his celebration panels. And it goes to such great lengths to kind of almost look like the Star Wars things, but (laughs) it's far enough away that they're not going to get sued. Yeah, Yeah, it's definitely inspired by... The article goes on to say The Empire Strikes Back has more happening simultaneously on several levels than Star Wars did, and William's careful orchestration has resulted in an intense, frightening, and even depressing sound spread over a slowly changing chromatic harmony. What do you feel about that? So I am a little bit of a musician, but I'm not enough of a musician to be able to dissect all of that. Um, he's right, of course, The Empire Strikes Back, you know, with its cross-cutting parallel editing, does have a lot more going on sort of simultaneously yeah. than, than the first movie. Um, and I think, the, yeah, the music... See, here's the thing about soundtrack music. I think when it's doing its job, you're not, you're not paying attention to the soundtrack music. The soundtrack music is there emphasizing what's happening on screen. So... Yeah, it would make sense then that the music and its musicality is reflecting what's happening on screen. But again, I'm not the musician to be able to explain how that's happening. <laughs> but it did deviate on, on, on that level, whereas the first Star Wars movie was it was cut and dry. Whereas this one, is, it's constantly changing scenes between Han, especially towards the end when you're going back and forth between Han and, and Luke training. So it's yeah. interesting observation there with the styles of music and the contrasts. 
You mentioned also that you collect read-along books. What were some of your fondest memories of that, that whole era of we didn't have videotapes? We did this. There were some. There were only so many ways that you could relive the magic of the movie. Right, and um, yeah, we did not have a VCR in my household. We did not have HBO in my household. So I saw Empire Strikes Back once in the movie theater. I did not see Star Wars as a kid until we eventually got a VHS player in the late '80s. Um, so it was. We, I mean, we had the, the, you know, the big storybooks, uh, which were fine, but they weren't quite as, like, interactive. They weren't quite as movie-like as the read-along, which also had sound and sound effects and dialogue. Yes, and yes. so, I mean, me, my brother and I, we would just, we'd have a little little tape player, and we would listen to those and read along on the books, and we just tore through them over and over and over. My brother and I were the same way. I could still, in my mind hear the guy's voice this is the story of star wars you will know it's time to turn the page (laughs) when you hear r2d2 beep like this yep yep, yep, yep. (laughs) yeah fun times hey thank you for joining us on this discussion about the soundtrack of the empire strikes back tell our listeners where to find out more information about record collecting so best place to go is on facebook star wars records and tapes it's facebook group Tony DeMata has a page. If you search Tony DeMata's Star Wars Records and Tapes, his webpage will come up. I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of it. Sorry, Tony. Those are probably two best bets. We have a special guest today. We're interviewing Dave Kaufman from Horizon Music. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you for having me on. Very nice to be with you. There's a link between science fiction and electronic music. So let me ask you, where did you grow up and how did you get into sci-fi? Well, I grew up in the uh, western suburbs of Chicago. I was never a science fiction fan per se uh, when I was growing up. I just liked a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the music that some people might associate with science fiction, however tenuous the link might be. All right, so tell us about your company, Horizon Music, and how there's such a resurgence in space music. We know it was popular in the 70s, but you hit conventions because we're seeing more and more people love this style of music. Horizon Music actually got started in the early 1990s. And at that, at the first, though, we were um, putting together a magazine that, was in, that uh, focused on the musical activities of the German electronic rock group Tangerine Dream and the various musicians that were in that band at one time or another. Well, one of those musicians, a British synthesist named Steve Jolliffe, asked us to uh, help distribute some of the CDs that he'd um, previously released. We did that. It went well enough so that he decided to ask us to uh, release his uh, newer music. We did that as well. One of those um, discs was actually chosen by the uh, syndicated radio program Musical Starstreams. Musical Starstreams actually chose one of uh, Steve Jolliffe's albums uh, as one of the top ten albums of 1996. So that was enough to persuade us that uh, we were on the verge of of doing something that, uh, you know, had some potential to it. We also started working with a few other musicians over uh, over the years, and that's what has led to the um, rather wide assortment of uh, titles that uh, people who come to Mid South Con will see. So tell us about 
the artists that your company represents and the diversity of space music? Well, as I mentioned, uh, one of the musicians, Steve Jolliffe, a British musician, had two stints with Tangerine Dream, one in the late 1960s and one in the late 1970s. He actually came up with the idea of Tangerine Dream as a musical trio, which uh, they uh, have pretty much been ever since uh, he, um, he was in that band. As far as other musicians go, some of those, some of those other musicians that uh, were in Tangerine Dream at one time or another, they started collaborating with uh, a couple of other musicians. Those musicians actually uh, asked us to uh, help um, promote their work, so that's uh, one of the things that I'm doing there. Right, and uh, in fact, a couple of the titles that I have for sale were originally released on the Hearts of Space label in the mid-1990s. They got the rights when uh, the late when that Hearts of Space label apparently ceased operations, so I released those two albums myself. Uh, but the artist that I'm refer- I was just referring to right now is a French duo called Lightwave. Another um, musician that I work with is a uh, Chicago-based musician named Bill Vermette, who I met while well, in the course of um, running a magazine, the aforementioned magazine that uh, wound up ceasing operations in the late 1990s. He was a subscriber to it, and when I found out that he was a musician himself, I started to uh, try to uh, help him sell his CDs, and I've got those on sale both here and on my website at hmnetwork.com. Interesting stories of dealing with the artists? Well, one that I'm currently thinking about that uh, isn't quite so fortunate was that Tangerine Dream uh, started doing some uh, remixes of, of their earlier compositions, including... One, that Steve Jolliffe, the British synthesis that I previously mentioned, almost single-handedly wrote. But they didn't give him any credit for it. They didn't tell him about it. They're not paying him any royalties on it. And there's a vocal shout in that particular piece that's on one of those Dream Mixes-type albums that's clearly Steve Jolliffe's. And believe it or not, it occurs at exactly the same moment in the remixed piece that it did in the original. It is. And um, Steve didn't know anything about this until I told him. Needless to say, he was not amused about this. But you figure that the albums weren't going to sell well enough for, for, for him to sue and get any money out of it, not to mention what it would cost to sue over something like this. So that's one of the not-so-pleasant stories that you sometimes run into with this kind of music. But then again, that's probably the way it is in a lot of businesses. So what's the fan reaction when they hear the space music? Either those of us that are older, that like the space music from years ago, or younger fans that are just being exposed to it. Well, one thing is is that a lot, I think a lot of the younger fans don't have CD players per se because I think they've grown up with, um, with these uh, sorts of devices that you're holding in your hands that can uh, apparently do a lot of things. So they, so the concept of an actual CD is something that they didn't grow up with the way, say, I grew up with vinyl, or that you might have grown up with vinyl, and then subsequent, uh, subsequently uh, grew up with, um, with, with CDs. One thing I heard um, on a radio broadcast on the all-new station in Chicago just the other day is that in the last 12 months, CD sales and vinyl sales have uh, rebounded from where they were a couple of years ago. Apparently, one of the reasons is that although it is possible to store a lot of things on a uh, handheld um, computer-type device, you don't get the sound quality that you get with an actual stereo. 
And plus, MP3s are not the best sound quality either. So maybe there's a little bit of a, um, a trip back to um, improved sound quality. But then again, I never left that. <laughs> I grew up loving space music. Uh, so what do we have to look forward to? Well, we have to, what I have to look forward to is just trying to sell the uh, music that I'm currently um, that, I'm, that I currently have on sale. If if good fortune comes my way, I may be able to um, to release some new some new material or some previously released material that's out of print. Who knows? All I can do is really play this by ear. So, in closing, tell our listeners about your company and where they can purchase space music. They can uh, go to my website at hmnetwork.com. That's H as in horizon, M as in music, and then the word network. That's all one word, hmnetwork.com. This is Tom Higgins from Classic 78, and you're listening to the Star Pod Log Podcast. There's been a lot of talk about music on these past couple segments. Let's talk about some of our favorite songs from the year 1980. I know we both loved the movie 9 to 5. Do you remember that song by Dolly Parton? Yeah, I used to sing it all the time. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't have MTV at the time, but there were shows like Night Flight. Do you remember that? Music videos were becoming a thing. Yeah, it it was that time when videos were becoming more popular. And certain songs I knew because of going to the roller skate rink, like Cool and the Gang Celebrate. That was a huge song to roller skate by. We were just at the tail end of the disco craze. So we're going to see that going back and forth between you're going to have some disco elements in songs, and then pop music would change as well because you had this new wave of British Invasion. But you still had classics coming out from the 70s that rolled over into the 80s. What about Hall & Oates? The Voices album had songs You Make My Dreams Come True and Your Kiss Is On My List. I loved Hall & Oates too. I remember those songs. Village People had Can't Stop the Music. Yeah, I remember that. I mean, I did the little dance they did to the chorus. Yeah. I don't even remember them (laughs) having a dance to that. Okay. Well, I do. (laughs) Where did you see that on? I I mean, on on TV, I don't... like Probably Solid Gold or something, right? That Um, was a show that was popular. Well, well, yeah, I did watch Solid Gold, but I don't remember the Village People being on there. They were were on lots of shows where they performed live. Variety shows? Yeah. This was the period where Black Sabbath had a new singer, Rodney James Dio. He released Heaven and Hell. And at the same time, Ozzy Osbourne went solo and released The Blizzard of Oz. KISS was still in their disco phase with their Unmasked album. At the same year, Peter Chris had a solo album, Out of Control. Iron Maiden would have their debut release and in fact would open up for KISS in 1980. What about Journey? The Departure album had Any Way You Want It. Blondie released The Tide Is High and Rapture in 1980. I, I do know those songs. I used to sing Rapture in school. Yeah, like for some reason I was the only one who knew the rap part of that song. <laughs> do you still know it? 
Fat Fat Freddy told me everybody sighed. DJ spinning, I said, my, my, Flash is fast, Flash is cool. Oh, do you know it? Do you no. want to do it? <laughs> I don't know it. Okay. <laughs> what about Barbara Streisand and Andy Gibbs? Woman in Love. Oh, yeah, I knew that song. Hugely popular. I remember that being on the radio when my mother was driving around doing errands. The Romantics had What I Like About You. The Rolling Stones, their album Emotional Rescue. Police album, Zenyatta Madada featured Don't Stand So Close to Me and Do 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 Da Da Da. Prince came out with Dirty Mind. Diana Ross had a big hit with Upside Down. That was another roller skate favorite of mine. U2's Boy album came out. The single was I Will Follow. Jay Giles, Love Stinks. Another one that's one of the earliest music videos that I ever saw. Van Halen, Women and Children First. They had the song And the Cradle Will Rock. Now here's... An interesting fact, Queen came out with two albums in 1980. The first one, The Game, which featured that single, and another one, Bites the Dust, plus Crazy Little Thing Called Love. I had that album. I do remember that. Yeah, because this is when I was in junior high. Everybody was singing Another One Bites the Dust. Yeah. I knew it as Junkyard Jogs theme. And later on that year, they recorded the soundtrack to Flash Gordon. Yeah, I definitely had that. The movie was great. I had that soundtrack, too. That's That was my exposure to Queen, was that album. And they had been around a long time before that, but... I didn't know a lot yeah, about yeah. rock music because my parents only listened to oldies in the car. And so I had, like, n- virtually no glimpse into the outside world. I mean, sometimes I would go to school and I'd hear... I remember be- distinctly on the bus kids playing Another Brick in the Wall yeah, by Pink Floyd. I mean, there are certain songs one. I remember hearing from school, but... Overall, it was it was hard for me to get into music because my my father controlled the radio and he was not going to listen to anything that 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 was current, especially the new wave of British heavy metal that was becoming popular. Def Leppard came out with the album On Through the Night, which had the song Rock Brigade. Judas Priest came out with British Steel, huge hits. Living After Midnight, Breaking the Law. What about Pat Benatar's Crimes of Passion? I had that. I had, like, I collected all of her albums for, for a while. Her first, like, six or seven albums, I think. Treat Me Right, Hit Me With Your Best Shot. Those are huge songs. I, I, I loved it. I choreographed a dance to Treat Me Right and did it as a solo back when, well, I was living in First Gerald and when I went back to Warner Robins to my old dance school, they let me be in the recital and do this dance I choreographed. <laughs> oh, how cool <laughs> is that? John Lennon and Yoko Ono released Double Fantasy. And later on that year, he died tragically in New York. David Bowie's Scary Monsters, Super Creeps. On that album was Fashion and Ashes to Ashes. This this was my entry into David Bowie. I had no idea who he was until I heard songs from this album. And then I had to go back and listen to more. I thought, I thought he was amazing. Back in Black. That album featured You Shook Me All Night Long as well as Hell's Bells. Joan Jett. And the Blackhearts came out with Bad Reputation. Yeah, I love their songs. Neil Diamond's Jazz Singer. I loved that movie as a kid, and I loved the soundtrack. I, I didn't see the movie as a kid, but I, d- I knew some of those songs because they were on solid Love Lord. on the Rocks? Yes. America? A huge hit. Loved it, yes. And a group that we both loved as children. They came out, they were prominent in the 70s, and they pretty much ended in 1980. ABBA. Super Trooper, Winner Takes All, Lay All Your Love on Me, 
all these songs were released in 1980. I loved ABBA as a kid. They had some great songs. I liked a lot of their 70s stuff, too. 1980, amazing year for music. From the interviewer's notebook. These are observations by columnist Samuel J. Maroney. What he does is he interviews a lot of the celebrities that we find in Starlog magazine. And he gives us a behind-the-scenes of what it's like when he's first approaching these actors and what their responses are and some of their commentary, almost like things that aren't in the actual articles, what his daily life is like. you got to figure this is before the Internet. So in order to get permission to interview a celebrity, he has to find the publicist, and then he has to work his way through the publicist in order to get to the actor. And I think it's amazing that the, the first one he comments on is Roddy McDowell when he's dressed in his Planet of the Apes makeup. And he asks him, Mr. McDowell, does it really bother you when visitors point and shout when you're in makeup? It's just because they figure he can't, under all those layers of prosthetics, they can't hear. And I love Rodney McDowell's response. It always disturbs me when people behave foolishly. <laughs> he said that when he was approaching Lou Ferrigno to do an interview that his publicist did not want him near Lou. And he said, well, I work for Starlog Magazine. And she looked at the magazine with disdain. And then once Lou saw that it was Starlog he was being interviewed for, Lou said, Starlog? With a grin. I, I'd love to be interviewed by you. I read Starlog all the time. Yeah, that's cool. Of course, Lou was a fan. We know he grew up reading comic books and everything. So his publicist had no idea. She needs to get with it, you know. <laughs> and that's what we're finding out. Like, behind the scenes, a lot of times the actors are more willing than their people are, are willing to cooperate with the press. When he was uh, about to interview Charlton Heston, he said he was super nervous about interviewing this Hollywood legend. And he was so worried about it that he was in the bathroom washing his hands. And as he turned around, he bumped into someone who was just exiting the stall. And who did he walk into? Charlton Heston. <laughs> he said so his first meeting with Charlton Heston was so awkward. But he said he was such a gentleman. And he really enjoyed sitting down and talking with him. Oh, that's neat too. It makes me think back to uh, years ago in the 90s. My brother brags about using the urinal next to George Takei. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, it's Paul Monk here from over in the UK. Today I'm taking a look back at an interview with Terence Dix, the former Doctor Who script editor and author, who passed away um, in 2019. This interview, of course, took place in 1980, uh, Terence being born in April 1935. And it's amazing to think that he was only 45 and very much still involved in Doctor Who when this interview was conducted by Alan Brenda for Starlog magazine. Now, Terence Dix is a name that means so much to Doctor Who fans in general, and me in particular. He was very much the elder statesman of Doctor Who. He was one of the great um, experts, if you like, professional experts in Doctor Who. I think Doctor Who fans like to think of themselves as experts. But Terence, having been involved in the show since the late 1960s, he was very much the man. He created a lot of Doctor Who lore. It was him who came up with, well, it was certainly during his era in Doctor Who, that 
the identity of the Doctor's planet Gallifrey was created. The sonic screwdriver came into play. The idea of the TARDIS being indestructible. Lots of things that we now take as very basic tenets of Doctor Law came about during his time in Doctor Who. And I'm sure he was involved in the creation of lots of those ideas too. He was very much responsible for expanding the lore of Doctor Who at a time when it didn't really have any. When Doctor Who started in the 60s, it was just an adventure in space and time. The Doctor played by William Hartnell and his companions travelling and having adventures. Then, of course, Patrick Troughton, who amusingly in the interview spelt T-R-O-U-T-E-N. Ah, different times. Um, yeah, so it was very much sort of an adventure format told across serials. But I think when Terence Dix and his producer Barry Letts came along, there was a special chemistry which gave the show a bit more cohesion and a bit more of a sense of history. It became more aware of its past and began to refer to its past a little bit more. And of course, under Terence, the show was able to build on its canon and create new myths, new stories, new creatures. Terence, to me, though, has a very special place in my affections because of the Target book range, which came out in the 1970s. Now, most Doctor Who fans of a certain age will still have, probably, bookshelves full of the colourful spines of the Target books, which he wrote based on the original TV serials. He he wrote adaptations of many, many of the stories. At the time this interview was conducted, he'd written 37 of the novelizations. He went on to write 67. He then carried on writing for Doctor Who. Even after that, he wrote three novels for The Virgin, uh, two for BBC Books, a number of short stories. And just before his death, he contributed another short story to an anthology released uh, released by the BBC. So he was very much involved in Doctor Who all through his professional life. And as I mentioned, the thing for me is I remember those Target books so very clearly. I, I recall Target republishing the original three Doctor Who hardback books from the 60s, publishing them in new bright covers in the 70s. And I still remember that incredible sensation of going into a local newsagent and seeing um, Terence's first book, which was um, The Auton Invasion, retitled from Spearhead from Space, and Malcolm Hulk's uh, Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters, which was, of course, Doctor Who and the Silurians. It was just extraordinary to have new Doctor Who books. Uh, it, it, we must remember that this is a time before VHS and DVD and Blu-ray and streaming and downloads. There was no thought for young Doctor Who fans at the time you'd ever get a chance to experience these adventures again. Just never get a chance to see them. So the Target books were... For many Doctor Who fans, the way that we learnt about so much of the show's history, and we owe so much of that to Terence Dix, who did so much to bring that history back to life. And over the years, he wrote so many of the books. Now, I think most will agree that as time went on into the 70s, the late 70s, the books became a little more perfunctory. I think if you compare his early books, I'm thinking things like Day of the Daleks and the Auton Invasion, to some of his later things like Horns of Nymon, Nightmare of Eden... They are very much uh, thin novelizations with, with little more than dialogue and brief descriptions. Whereas in the earlier books, he made more of an effort to make them books rather than novelizations. So I'm sure this was down to the need to churn these things out fairly quickly. But certainly, I collected all the books. I had them all at one point. Unfortunately, I did get rid of them many years ago. But I've collected quite a lot of them since then. And I think it's a testament to Terence Dix himself that a number of his best books were collected and republished under the Target banner by BBC Books last year as the essential Terence Dix. And I think Terence Dix is essential. For any Doctor Who fan, you need to be familiar with what he brought to Doctor Who and the, the seriousness with which he took his work. 
Um, and, and beyond Doctor Who, he did so many other things as well. He was he wrote for series like Blake Seven. He co-created Moonbase Three, a short-lived science fiction drama series for the BBC in the seventies with Barry Letts. He really was the doyen of Doctor Who, the godfather of Doctor Who. And it's just interesting to read this interview at the time when Doctor Who wasn't very well known in America. It was just starting to make inroads on the PBS stations. And I think it's very telling that he says, as, as, as I've often said at the beginning of the interview, the only two shows that have ever really made science fiction accessible to a mass television audience are Star Trek and Doctor Who. Something I've always said. Other shows come and go, The X-Files, Battlestar Galactica... Babylon 5, they, they burn brightly for a while, but only in the genre community. There are very, very few shows that the man in the street knows. And I think that really in most civilised countries in the world, you talk about Doctor Who or Star Trek, and people know what you're talking about. They've become massive cultural icons. And Terence Dix is right in the centre of that because he has been responsible for keeping so much of that stuff alive in the form of his novelizations and the work he brought to the series in establishing much of its mythology. As a little side note, uh, I also remember visiting his house back in the early 1980s. I think it would be when I was involved in the early days of Doctor Who fandom. I was lucky enough to visit his house in London. And it was quite interesting because there's a documentary on a recent Blu-ray box set. I think it's season eight, where the uh, British comedian Frank Skinner, who was also a massive Doctor Who fan, um, he he tries to find out a little bit more about Terence Sticks and he visits his home and... When he went into his home, although my memories of that visit are fairly blurry now because it was a long time ago, when he went into his workroom, his sort of office space in the attic, it, it brought back a memory. There's a sort of a skylight window, and I can remember sort of sitting there talking to him. I was up there with a friend of mine, and I can remember being in that room and noticing he had lots of books and, and stuff, and which he, which he kept up until the end of his end of his life. And it, it struck a chord seeing that documentary because I just remembered being there and, and meeting him. And he was a lovely, charming bloke. He gave me a signed hardback copy of The Horns of Naimon, which had yet to be released. Sadly, again, that's long gone, I'm afraid. But this interview just reminds me of Terence Dix in his younger days. As I say, he was 45. He still had a very active career at the time. But Doctor Who, once he became involved in Doctor Who, like most of us, it sort of stayed with him for the rest of his life. Fascinating interview. Fascinating man. Um, the late, great Terence Dix, an absolute Doctor Who legend. Hi. I'm Anna from Anna's Magical Moments. I am a travel agent specializing in Disney, Universal, all-inclusive, and cruises. I can help you and your family make exciting adventures all around the world. You can find me on YouTube at Anna's Magical Moments. It's time for the convention report. We just got back from ICCC. That is the Imperial Commissary Collectors Convention. It's a convention of epic proportions. It's not called a Star Wars convention, but we all know it's a Star Wars convention. What did you think about this year's ICCC? It was crowded, wasn't it? (laughs) Amazing how many people showed up for this one. I mean, it was a lot of fun, too. It's just that get like getting through the crowd. Well, I mean, it's like you would think it was Dragon Con. (laughs) You trying to push through the crowds wherever you go. I have to say that the dealer's room every year gets more and more epic. It's to me, it's almost like a museum. I'm seeing things that are just mind blowing that you won't see at a normal convention. The dealer's room was a good size, and it seemed like they had the tables a little too close together. You know, because there was so much. They're packing them in. There there was a lot there. Every inch of that dealer's room was used. There's no doubt about it. And we're talking about high end toys and collectibles. 
in the thousands, in the five digits range. Mind blowing, wasn't it? That's um, always been the main draw of this con was the collectibles. I mean, that's why people travel so far. The Star Wars collectors, they know they can get a lot of good stuff here. Absolutely loved the panels with Ian McDermott, the Emperor, and we were able to be up close and personable with him. He seemed like a fun guy. He was he was very funny and and seemed to enjoy the crowd. And and of course the the panel room was was filled too. You know, and that room wasn't really big enough for all the people that wanted to see him. Yeah, this con is bursting at the seams. It, it was funny. One of our listeners, we actually had a few listeners that came that said, we finally are making it to this convention. You talk about it so much. Uh, one said to us, you didn't tell us that it was this crowded. I said, well, have you gone years past? No, I never bothered because it looked empty. And, and I think that's one of the problems. People have erroneously looked at pictures of when they didn't perceive that it was a great con. That, uh, hey, we talked about it earlier on. The amount of the people attending the convention doesn't make it better or worse. You know, it's all about what you like and what you enjoy. And we've been saying it for years. This is an incredible convention. Well, more and more people are catching on to the buzz and realizing that uh, this in many ways rivals or surpasses Star Wars Celebration. Me personally, I like it better than Celebration. I've been to both. I like this a lot better. It's like a more intimate, personal level of Celebration but it just has a unique energy and a unique vibe like no other. I mean, when you look at, at pictures from previous cons, and they must have been like the area was too big some of the times. And so true. And that's why it looked like the people were more spread out. But I think they, they've always had a good number of people at these. That's how it's been able to come back every year and get better and better guests. And and, and we've always liked the the personalities that they've had. That let's say the non-star celebrities, because I I love hearing the behind-the-scenes stories and the creators, people who are doing things for the hobby and for the movies. Uh, one of the exciting big celebrities, another one was Anthony Daniels, and you saw him decades ago, and, and it's amazing he hasn't seemed to age. I saw him years ago at at Dragon Con, and now seeing him at this con, you know, he was still. He was still very energetic, and he still hadn't aged, hasn't gained weight. I mean, that, it's that to me is the big one. Yeah, yeah. But he was very, um, he was very friendly and funny, and you know the way he was, he kept walking on and off the stage. I mean, you could tell he had a lot of energy. So yeah, he, it was just great. It was, it was fun seeing him. I asked the question at the Q and A part portion of the panel. His whole thing was pretty much all Q and A. Here's my question. And this was his response. So early on in Starlog magazines, there were interviews with all the principal players. But then later on in the late 80s, there was finally an interview with you. And you expressed that you weren't allowed to give public viewpoints of anything on your character to maintain the mystique of whether there was a person in there or a robot. So if you were allowed to give interviews in the 70s and 80s in Starlog, what would you express? Eat your heart out. <laughs> the film was great when you saw it. To make the film was very, very difficult. Uh, for Not just for me, certainly for George it was difficult. Uh, but I had my own physical issues and all that kind of thing. And I felt very... 
felt kind of alone, really. I mean, it was great working with Mark Hamill because he did actually manage to make you and me think that 3PO was real. But working, you know, I was alone. R2-D2 didn't speak to me. All that sound was put in later. So I was putting... I was doing two performances. I only got paid for one. It was cruel. <laughs> but then the film opened, and it was a huge, huge success, as you know. And then I began to see articles saying, uh, in a scene uh, from Star Wars, uh, Luke Skywalker, brackets, Mark Hamill, close brackets, with C-3PO. I wasn't there. I was never there. And it got to be really quite difficult, because I put, I had the biggest part in the movie, had more lines than anyone else, and I didn't exist as a person. On set, you know, I was willing to pretend to be 3PO, um, but I needed to live as me. And it took many years, many years, for them to stop pretending that I was, 3PO was real. You know, when you see a thing, the actors are acting. They are, you know, somebody who, who uh, Ian isn't the emperor, he's acting the emperor, doing it very well. Uh, I was acting three people. But both of us exist as human beings. And they really denied my humanity. And that was wrong. And I say it very publicly now. Yeah, and now it, it, it's fine. But at the time it was, it was a little hurtful. Because around the world, it was Star Wars. And friends used to say, hey, it must be really good to be in Star Wars. You know, I didn't want to talk about it. Because it hurt. And then something changed. Well, we made episode five. Because I nearly didn't do it. And then I realized I was an actor. It was a job. I was paid. But more important than that, I had grown fond of 3PO. He was kind of somebody I needed to take care of. Just as he takes care of everybody else, he needs being taken care of. And that's why I have stayed with him. So whether it's a film, a cartoon, a voiceover for this or that, you have my body, my voice, my brain, giving you C-3PO. I hope that's all right. Yeah, this convention has expanded so much. A role-playing game room, a tabletop game room, a fan room for all the fan clubs there. I mean, there were Star Wars fan clubs as far as Canada coming down for this. Battlestar Galactica fandom, Aliens fandom. They had the Rebel Legion, 501st Legion. I mean, the costumes there were amazing. It was just a blast all around. A video game room. I mean, it was endless. Pool party with live music. I can't wait for ICCC 2023. Welcome to Ringside Wrestling with Flynn Hendricks, where we discuss highlights from the year 1980. In January, one of the biggest feuds of the early 1980s began when Larry Zbysko attacked his mentor Bruno Sammartino during a WWF television taping at Allentown, Pennsylvania. The storyline had it that Zbysko had grown tired of being held back and living in Sammartino's shadow. Accusations Sammartino strongly denied. The feud continued through August and a match at the 1980 showdown at Shea Stadium is where it all came to a head. On February 1st, Ted DiBiase wins the Mid-South North American Championship from Mike George in Shreveport, Louisiana. And on February 8th, Stan Hansen wins the NWF World Heavyweight Championship from Antonio Inoki in Tokyo, Japan. A colossal showdown took place on March 28th. The first known Andre the Giant versus Hulk Hogan match takes place at a non-televised WWF house show from Binghampton, New York. 
both wrestlers were counted out. Their first televised match takes place July 26th at the Philadelphia Spectrum and aired on the PRISM Network, and the two were one of the high-profile matches during the showdown at Shea Supercard August 9th at Shea Stadium. Andre would win most of these early confrontations, usually by counter disqualification. Although Hogan body-slammed Andre in most of their matches, this fact was unacknowledged when their feud rekindled in 1987. On April 1st, the man who would go on to be known as the Legend Killer, the Viper, the Apex Predator, Randy Orton was born in Knoxville, Tennessee. On May 10th, Rick Steamboat and Jay Youngblood retained their NWA World Tag Team title from Ray Stevens and Greg Valentine in Greensboro. And on May 19th, Roddy Piper and Rick Martell win the NWA Canadian Tag Team title from the Sheep Herders in Vancouver. The title is vacated later in the year. In June, on June 22nd, Ray Stevens and Jimmy Snuka win the NWA Tag Team title from Rick Steamboat and Jay Youngblood in Greensboro. July of 1980 was a month full of title changes. On July 18th, Vern Gagne wins the AWA World Heavyweight Championship from Nick Bockwinkle in Chicago, Illinois. On July 20th, the East-West Connection, comprised of Adrian Adonis and Jesse Ventura, are awarded the AWA World Tag Team Championship by forfeit in Denver, Colorado, from previous champions Vern Gagne and Mad Dog Vashon, when Gagne, who won the AWA World title two days earlier, no-shows. July 26th, Greg Valentine wins the NWA Mid-Atlantic United States title from Ric Flair in Charlotte. However, WWE, which claims this title's history for its WWE United States Championship, does not recognize this title change. On August 3rd, Harley Race retains the NWA World Heavyweight Championship in a best-of-three falls bout against Dusty Rhodes at the last tangle in Tampa. This supercard featured Fritz Von Erich as the special guest referee, and Rhodes would go on to win the first fall over Race, but the time limit expires during the second fall. On August 9th, Bruno Sammartino defeats former protege Larry Zabisco in a steel cage match at the WWF Showdown at Shea Super Show in Flushing, New York. As a part of the undercard, Andre the Giant beats Hulk Hogan, and WWF Intercontinental Champion Ken Patera retains his title via count-out loss to Tony Atlas. On August 10th, Stu Bennett, the man that would go on to be known as Wade Barrett, future Intercontinental Champion, NXT commentator, leader of the Nexus, was born in Preston, Lancashire, England. On October, Big Time Wrestling, the Sheik's NWA-affiliated promotion in Detroit, ceases operations. And rounding out the year, on December 27th, the man that would go on to be known as Cesaro, Claudio Castagnoli, is born in Switzerland. And on December 29th, the first WWF-promoted card from New York's Madison Square Garden airs on the USA Network, marking the beginning of a long-standing relationship between what is now the WWE and the USA Network. At this point, however, USA would air wrestling, almost always the WWF, on an occasional basis until 1983. And that was 1980 in professional wrestling. And this has been Flynn Hendricks, the one-man enterprise, the UCW Southern Heavyweight Champion, the man who will soon be the UCW Ultimate Undisputed Southern Heavyweight Champion. And if you want to keep up with me and everything I'm doing and all my upcoming wrestling appearances, voice acting endeavors, podcasting, you name it, I'm doing it, go to linktree slash Hendricks. You'll find my website, my demo reels, my YouTube channel, Everything I'm doing on social media and podcasting is all right there. So let's get connected, show your support, get some merch. I've got information for all that at my link tree. So go check it out, and I hope you enjoyed this segment of what happened in 1980 for professional wrestling. And I know you hear me. The Starfighter and Buck Rogers. Okay, Kane, get ready to fight. Meet Kane and the Draconian Marauder. You'll never catch me. Planes need assembly. Each plane and action figure sold separately. 
There's Twinkie. Get the robot. You can pretend he's being chased by Draco, Tiger Man, and the Draconian Guard. Calling Buck Rogers. Help! Buck Rogers, Twinkie, Draco, and Tiger Man. Each sold separately by Mego. Starlog Magazine, issue number 38, September 1980. Log Entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Saturday morning sword and sorcery. In a few thousand years, Earth is barely recognizable. Two moons fill the night sky. Mutant jungles abound. Rising up from the ashes of old earth is the hero of a new age, a horseman without equal. We're talking about nothing other than Thundar the Barbarian. Were you a Thundar fan? Yeah, that was uh, one of those Saturday morning cartoons. I loved it. And Steve Gerber of Howard the Duck fame was a story editor and will be contributing to stories on the series. Jack Kirby was the visual designer of the landscapes. Amazing. I didn't realize at the time that they were taking personalities from the world of comics and applying them to Saturday morning cartoons. The Nuts and Bolts of K-9 In 1977, when the world went robot crazy over Star Wars, R2-D2, and C-3PO, the producers of the BBC TV series Doctor Who decided to give the Doctor his own robot dog for a companion. Script writers Bob Baker and Dave Martin had delivered a story entitled The Invisible Enemy, which included a mechanical creature named Fido. A decision was made later to enlarge the robot's part with the possibility that it would continue in the series. How many times do we go to conventions and we see little canines roaming around the halls? Oh, I know I've seen them. Very similar to R2-D2. And I didn't realize that, so that's that 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 was the inspiration for K nine was Star Wars. Go figure, huh? I'm so glad that there was that influence there, because K nine is fantastic. Handcrafted Middle Earth. Tolkien devotees can now glimpse Gollum without risking a trip to the Misty Mountains. They can also see Bilbo Baggins, Gandalf the Grey, Frodo, and the brave Aragorn. After several years of planning, Royal Dalton has introduced these five characters from Middle-earth to its line of handcrafted ceramic art. This is one of those things that I would see, and I actually, as a kid when I saw it, I thought, wow, when I get older, when I get to be an adult, this is the type of things that I'm going to have around my house. (laughs) (laughs) Because they were starting to craft things at this time, not just toys for kids, but collectibles for an adult market and this is one of the earliest things that that we see of that sort and now the the adult collecting community is huge figurines not made for play but just for display it has to be for adults the prices are between 30 and 45 dollars yeah you got to figure that in today's money that's anywhere between 100 and 150 dollars each Very similar to the statues that you see in comic stores. Like all those busts that you see in comic book stores. Exactly. All the different variations. But it does have roots in the early 80s. We see evidence of it. One Step Closer, 
Spielberg's dazzling vision of intergalactic brotherhood, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, has been revised and re-released as CE3K, the Special Edition. Now, I did not realize that Close Encounters of the Third Kind was facing a rush to the theaters, a deadline to get to the box office, very similar to Star Trek The Motion Picture, to the point that the full editing wasn't done. When this movie was released in 1977, fans weren't seeing what Steven Spielberg really wanted them to see. So this talks about the upcoming special edition, a re-edited version. The studio, that is Columbia, gave Spielberg a million dollars to shoot a few new scenes to make the movie more cohesive. And they would blitz the market with a re-release campaign to get people in the movie theaters to see it back again. What do you think about that idea? It's interesting. I mean, people who have already seen it, like, why would they pay money to go back and see it again in theaters? But you have to, but of course, the the kids will because they love seeing movies over and over. I know, I know, I did back then. And then there's the idea of you're getting new footage, but the interesting thing about this edit is they're actually removing footage as well. The idea was to present the film in its truest form. That's an interesting idea. And the thing is, when you when you know that they that they've added something and they and they've taken stuff out. You, you go to see it just to see what you can spot, like to see how well you remember the original and see what's changed. Yeah, and the emphasis here is this is not a cash grab. This is presenting the movie as it initially should have been presented. I see, I see where Steven Spielberg is coming from. He wants this to be the definitive edition. And we know that years later, there still was another special director's edition that came out in the late 90s. I have mixed feelings about when when movies are tweaked from from the original edition. Sometimes it pans out very well, and sometimes not so much. But when I read this article, it hit me. Do you think that George Lucas was influenced somehow by Steven Spielberg's decision to tweak Close Encounters of the Third Kind? You mean when George Lucas uh, remastered the, the original three Star Wars movies? He could have been influenced. Um, well, part of the reason for the, for the re-release of those movies was also to prepare for the next trilogy that was coming out. But but yeah, I mean it's like like let's just go back and change things and make like add more special effects, have even more blowing up and things like that. And yeah, and doing things that George Lucas couldn't afford to do before makes you wonder. Are you on the hunt for rare collectibles? Do you have old toys gathering dust in your attic? Then come on down to IC Toys, 526 East Irish Drive in Nashville, Tennessee. No collection too big or too small. We buy it all. We also sell toys and collectibles from Star Wars, MOTU, TMNT, Legos. We even have lightsabers. Come on down to 526 East Irish Drive and check out some really awesome collectibles at IC Toys. Nashville. Hello everyone out there. I have a Starlog magazine right here in front of me. It's the 10th anniversary of Star Wars. Hopefully when the guys get to this issue in 1987, they'll invite me back on because uh, when I make videos, I always grab this one. There's a lot of information in uh, the Star Wars issue, the 10th anniversary issue. But uh, if you didn't know the Junk Man, you can find my YouTube channel at thatjunkman.com. I talk a lot of Star Wars, a lot of pop culture, and a lot of toys. And the article I'm going to react to is in their rambling section from issue 38. The Empire Strikes Out. 
felt like I was reading Man Magazine there. I mean, come on. Can you get more? This this guy apparently didn't like The Empire Strikes Back, and we'll dig into that. But uh, his title was The Empire Strikes Out. That's the most original title he could come up with. I think everyone in 1980 was saying, The Empire Strikes Out. I swear I saw it in Mad Magazine. Probably saw it in Crack Magazine. I saw it anywhere. Anyone made fun of Star Wars or Empire Strikes Back. They always said, The Empire Strikes Out. It's a hack thing to say. Now, going into this, I was already fuming and hated. And I was going to read his bashing of The Empire Strikes Back. I was like, how can anyone hate Empire Strikes Back, right? It's one of the best sequels of all times. And when I started reading it, I, it hit me. I said, well, this guy, I will give it to him. He's got some, uh, I won't use the word, but you know he's got some big ones because we're talking Starlog Magazine here. Someone to write a bad review about anything Star Wars back in 1980, any, to put it in a Starlog Magazine, that was risky. I mean, the only thing probably more riskier than that would be to bash on anything Star Trek because, hey, that's where the Starlog name comes from, Star Trek. This was the Mount Rushmore of science fiction things. Everyone was waiting for this, so you had to give it a good review. So I started digging into it. Let me see what he's going to say. And I wish I could say his reasons for not liking the film were something I could agree with or at least understand where he's coming from. But he seems to forget the core that this is science fiction. It's not science fact. He nitpicks. It's my problem with a lot of people within some of their newer movies. People will nitpick little things when they're thinking really things to be wrong with it you can say but then they dig into the nitpicking and you just can't do that with star wars you know there's a uh, any battle in space makes sounds hey we know that and in the beginning of this one he goes in on to talk about the asteroid field how they land on the asteroid and they're inside of a monster and he doesn't understand where gravity is he doesn't understand where this monster eats we don't need this whole backstory of the of the asteroid monster the slug monster here you just go with it you say, well, maybe this creature, we don't know anything about space. Maybe this creature doesn't need oxygen like we do. Now, they put on the mask, and he talks about how an asteroid wouldn't have gravity and all this. It just really bogs down with the technical stuff, where you could probably do that to every scene in a Star Wars movie. You probably could go through with the ad-ass wouldn't do this, snow speeders wouldn't do that, blah, blah, blah. So, that's really just nitpicking again, finding reasons. And that shouldn't be a reason to take you out of the movie, because there's a monster or a creature living on an asteroid and there seems to be gravity at least in his stomach anyway so then he goes on to talk about how long it took the falcon to get to cloud city bespin is something i've seen people you know nitpick or talk about before nothing they really get upset about or hate the film because of it and he talks about how there's no hyperdrive but you know we don't know what is in this world. Sure, they didn't have a hyperdrive, but they may have something to make the ship go beyond light speed. That's a little, you know, below hyperdrive. Maybe a hyperdrive, like that's where you got to go if you want to get anywhere in a good time. Bespin's close. Maybe they got something that's like a little under hyperdrive and they can use it. I'm not really sure. And part of the fun of Star Wars is you're not sure. You don't want every little thing explained to you. How they got there. Why they come over there. Why they do this. How did that work? Why does that breathe? That's my problem with a lot of the EU stuff is they explain too much. And Star Wars, I like not knowing. I like going to see the movie back in 1980, getting home. Me and my brother, me and my friends discuss how this happened. What do you think over here? How do you think they did this? What happened on Ormandela? I think that's how you pronounce it. But just really really nitpicking here and i was ready i was willing to give this guy a chance for some really solid stuff another thing he seems to really be upset about is the character of luke skywalker how he's portrayed here he talks about the x-wing fighter and how 
Luke Skywalker can't pull the X-Wing up. So Yoda does it for him. And he doesn't learn anything. And he's like, why does Yoda do it for him? I think he's missing the whole point of this. Is Luke doesn't believe in himself. Therefore, he can't do it. He has to see Yoda do it. He says, why didn't Yoda put it back in the swamp? We have to get the x-wing out of the swamp so he can get on and fight vader so there has to be a reason there and he said why don't we cut back and we see that yo that he saw what yoda did and now he has confidence and he thinks he can do it and he does it and then you're going into facing vader where you think this guy has learned everything he could the point of the story is to get luke to bespin to face vader when he's still young he's still naive he's not listening to yoda yoda tells him not to go he goes anyway you yoda tells him he can lift the x-wing he can't lift the x-wing yoda tells him he can go into the cave but don't take his weapons with him he goes into the cave takes his weapon with him we can't see that he's becomes this jedi master or really learned anything when he faces vader no we have to see him face because then we know this is a different loot than what the beginning of the movie. He's coming on here. He's going to fight Vader. It's going to all go good. So I think he missed the whole point of this Yoda thing. Another thing he points out that it doesn't have a MacGuffin. Now, as a MacGuffin, I didn't hear uh, that word until George Lucas started. He would always bring it up when he talks to doing a new Indiana Jones movie. This is what gives the character motivation. It doesn't have to be the plot, but it's what moves the story along. You know, and Raiders is finding the Ark. In the original Star Wars, it was getting the plans to the Rebels or rescuing the Princess, I guess. Well, I guess they didn't rescue the Princess by accident, so it was getting the plans to the Death Stars to the Rebel. So he was complaining there's no MacGuffin here. There's nothing for the characters to go for. I guess you could say one MacGuffin is trying to get the Rebels. Darth Vader has a MacGuffin, but I'm just being silly there. But that's one thing we like about this movie, at least I think many of you do also, is it doesn't really do what every other movie does. That's the problem with most sequels. They just copy the first one. They could have easily had Luke and Han Leia back together trying to get some more plans or trying to get the Rebels here or trying to get the Empire to do this. No, we're in the middle of a three-story act here. And the middle is always the darker. There's no MacGuffin because it doesn't need to be a MacGuffin. The MacGuffin is winning against the empire and that's all three of them right so you don't need this middle section again this guy's missing the whole point of star wars or at least the empire strikes back now i was all ready to rip this guy a new one you know really really give it to him for hating empire strikes back one of my favorite films of all time one of the best sequels ever he just doesn't seem to understand the movie so i really can't sit here and bash him because He's not seeing the movie as I see. If he understood the movie, if he understood the motivation of Yoda, if he understood what was going on, if he didn't nitpick everything, then I could bash him more. But I can't really bash a guy that just doesn't get in the movie. And I really love to. I would love to know what happened to this guy. I would like to see his thoughts on Return of the Jedi. Maybe I'll have to wait until 1983 to read that issue if he did one there. And I would love to find this guy today. Maybe his thoughts on Empire Strikes Back has changed. I'm curious about that. Because I know back then in 1980, there were some people that did feel a little let down with the movie. They still liked it, but it just didn't have that satisfied ending. And they kind of bothered some people. And then as we got older, Empire became more loved. Not saying it was hated in 1980. I'm just saying there was a small group of people that felt let down about it. And now the majority of people think it's the best Star Wars movie. And he goes on in this article talking about how there's no climax at the end. There's no real winning at the end of this movie. And again, I think that's what a lot of people we love about this. I grew up watching soap operas with my mother. Uh, Guiding Light is what I normally would watch. And every other week, it would have some villain falling off a cliff. And two months later, he'd come back to life. They always had these cliffhangers. And I loved it. And I, and seeing Empire Strikes Back, I was like, that's why my mom likes soap opera so much because of that. I love that three year wait we had when we didn't know what was going to happen. It left us hanging. And 
I can relate. You know, I started watching them soap operas around that same time. And Roger Thorpe or somebody would come back from the dead and would just always get me excited. I was like, why am I into this soap opera stuff? Because I love a good cliffhanger. I love a good twist. But anyway, that's a look at the issue from Starlog, The Empire Strikes Out. And David, if you hear this, uh, I probably won't hear it, but if you do hear it, I'm really more upset that you came up with the title, The Empire Strikes Out. Now, that's the best you could come up with. Probably the most hacked title you could come up with in 1980. I'm very disappointed in that, more than I'm disappointed that someone didn't like The Empire Strikes Back. Check out my channel, thatjunkman.com. Starlog Interview with Tim O'Connor, the leader of New Chicago and the resident genius of Buck Rogers enjoys what he's doing. I love this article about Tim O'Connor because right off the bat he says, I'm a Buck Rogers fan. I grew up watching Buck Rogers. Yeah, that was neat to read. He was actually a sci-fi fan. Yeah, so he knew who Dr. Hewer was. It's very similar to the modern sequel trilogy of Star Wars movies. John Boyega went up to Harrison Ford and asked him to autograph a Han Solo action figure. I mean, the people in the movies were fans of the original incarnations. So, Tim O'Connor was a fan of the serials. He knew what he was getting into. And that's great, and he seems like such a nice guy in this interview. He has a background in acting, Peyton Place. I never watched the show. It was a soap opera in the 1960s, but I know my mother did. I, I never saw it, but I've heard of it. And he talks about doing soap operas. It's fast-paced. You have very little time to learn your lines. You're always on the gun. Where he says, working on Buck Rogers, it's fast-paced, but not that fast. He gets a little bit more time to think, to, to contemplate. And he loves that his character is one that's a guiding force for Buck. But also, he plays it very naive. Because he doesn't understand what Buck is talking about half the time. That was always one of the funny things they had on the show, was Dr. Hewer not understanding something. But this article says that Hewer was the genius. You know, I didn't really think of him that way. I didn't either, and I wanted to ask you your thoughts on it. Why do you think that they called him the genius? Was it just because he was running the operation? It must have been, yeah, because he was the one in charge. It seemed more like Dr. Theopolis, I think, was the one that was supposed to be the, the most intelligent. Well, because he was a computer. Dr. Hewer was just the one in charge, and, um, I mean, he was a smart man. He, I thought he was a good leader. In a lot of ways, they made him more of a background character, though. But but I also noticed uh, that he was on, Tim O'Connor was on Wonder Woman. I do remember that That's right. when he was on the two-parter about the people from outer space, and that was pretty neat. And and I didn't recognize back then, you know, that he was, he, that he was like Clad 2 from Day the Earth Stood Still. Epic science fiction movie. I mean, as listeners, if you haven't watched A Day the Earth Stood Still, that is must-view classic sci-fi. That actually sets a template going forward with science fiction movies. And, of course, Tim O'Connor would later go on to do Star Trek. He was a guest on one episode. That's right, Next Generation. Yes. He says he gets along very well with the cast of Buck Rogers. And this is one of the shows where you don't really hear gossip. You don't hear drama. I think that their relationship amongst themselves... Seem very natural. It does seem like they all got along. You, you know, it's a shame that um, that they didn't bring Dr. Hewer back for season two, which he, he didn't know at the time of, of this interview. 
And he said one of his favorite moments on the show was able to work with the original Buck Rogers. Oh, that must have been great for him. Yes. Buster Crab. How cool is that? Yeah, to get to work with one of your childhood idols. He goes on to say that Buster Crab was a marvelous man. I have had seen several of the original shows from the 30s, and we spoke a lot and spent a lot of time together talking about them. And I have to say, that says a lot about Buster Crab. We discussed his work in a previous episode of Star Pod Log, and that Buster Crab really took to heart that he was not only Flash Gordon, but Buck Rogers. He wore those titles with pride. He embraced the characters. As always, we're going to finish this episode by talking about one of the advertisements that's found in Starlog. This one is an advertisement for the Thinking Cap Company. They produce authorized caps designed by Star Wars Academy Award winner John Molo. So there's the Star Wars Rebel Forces cap, which essentially looks like a baseball cap with a patch on it, and then the official cap of the Imperial Guard. So let's talk about, first, the Rebel Forces cap. As worn by the heroic rebels in Star Wars Episode Four, with specially designed embroidered insignia and distinctive back flap, washable cotton poly tan, seven ninety five. Okay, it's not bad price. How about what they call the Imperial Guard? So we we normally call it the Imperial Officer's Cap. As worn by the sinister aides of Darth Vader in Episodes Four and Five. Metal insignia, washable cotton poly, black, eight ninety five. It's a great deal for that. Well, yeah, those don't sound too bad. I mean, that, that would be neat to have. As members of the five hundred first, we do have the imperial officer's cap. I don't remember anybody during this era walking around with caps like this. Do you? No, they must not have been big sellers. And it's a reasonable price. The Thinking Cap Company is based out of Los Angeles, California. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. Nanu.